0: Good afternoon, it's uh, Thursday, January the 15th, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop. I'm Rama Ratnam, sitting in for Sama Qureshi, and our guest today is Professor Michael Ryan from the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Ryan is Clark Hubbs Regents Professor of Zoology in the section of Integrative Biology in the School of Life Sciences, and his area of research is the evolution and function of animal behavior, in particular sexual selection and animal communication and frozen fish. Hi, Mike. It's very good to have you with us today. Thank you for inviting me. And also with us today are Dr. Charlie Wilson. Hi. Carlos Palladini. Hello, how are you? Mike Farris. Hello. And Todd Troyer. It's a pleasure, Rama. Okay, so let us start off by asking a simple question about the tungara frog models, Mike. Um, so you worked with the tungara frog for many years. And how did you actually get started on the species? What made you pick the species? And what actually makes it a good model system for studying uh, sexual selection and animal communication?
1: Well, it's kind of a long story, but I'll make it short. For my master's degree, I was studying territorial behavior in bullfrogs and studying how males defended territories, which the females then used as a place to lay their eggs. And when I was studying the bullfrogs, I would listen to them, of course, because they're calling all night, and then it became clear to me that the males all sounded different from one another. But in those days, the the mating call was thought to be only a species-specific vocalization that told the females the males was of a certain species, and that was all. So then when I, when I went on to Cornell to do my PhD thesis, I decided... To study male vocalizations, but not at the level of species at the level at the level of individuals, and to ask very simply, does variation in the cause of the species recognition call does that actually influence how the females choose their mates, so are they doing more than choosing just the species or are they choosing individuals within the species so my interest was was totally behavioral, but Bob Kapranica was a Faculty member in neurobiology and behavior, Cornell, and Koparanik was well known from his studies for studies of the auditory system. So, through my interactions with Koparanik and people in his lab, then I also became interested in the underlying mechanisms of uh, call recognition. I went to Panama. I went to study red-eyed tree frogs. The, everything they were doing, they were doing about twenty meters in the canopy, and I couldn't get good recordings, and I couldn't see what they were doing. And these little pesky tungara frogs were just calling at my feet. And then after a few weeks of kicking them, they shut them up. I decided, why don't I just let them call and study them? So that's how I started to study them. Okay. Why,
0: so what is it, why is it a good model system? I mean, are there any special features of the tungara frog, say, as opposed to, say, bullfrogs or other tree frogs that makes it sort of more suitable for, for studying uh, sexual selection and communication?
1: Yeah, well, first, there's the general advantages of frogs for these kinds of studies. So their vocal repertoire is fairly simple, (coughs) meaning that it's fairly simple to do quantitative measures of the signals and to synthesize signals to use in plague-back experiments. Frogs have external fertilization, so it's usually quite easy to determine who's mating with the the uh, female. So in that sense, it's easy to determine a male's reproductive success. So one can measure variation in the call, actually see who the females choose in the wild and then know which males have um, more reproductive success than other males. And then also you can move them into the laboratory, put a female in an acoustic chamber and play her two calls and she'll actually hop up to one of the speakers versus another. So these behavioral experiments are really robust paradigms for assaying the female's preference. The Tungra frog in specific, what makes them more, um, more easy to work with than some other species is they're very, very abundant and they're very common throughout much of the uh, lowland tropics in Panama where, where we do this work. So it's a very common species. And then when they mate, they produce a foam nest that takes over an hour to produce so it's very easy to monitor an animal's mating success because they're not going off and hiding away someplace where the males fertilize the eggs. They're doing this out in the open. They're making this huge snowball as they do it, so it's always very easy, easy to find them. So why do they do
2: this uh, um, nesting?
1: Why do they make the foam nest? That's, now that's a good question because if you look at the adaptation of an animal... Quite often, you will make the wrong guess as to why that might have evolved. And what you really have to ask is not why a species is doing a certain behavior, but what was the behavior and the ecology and the physiology when this trait first evolved. So, Tungra frogs are in lowland tropics in Middle America, and it's usually wet. Well, the foam nests didn't evolve in Tungra frogs, they evolved in the subfamily which has several hundred species. And this subfamily didn't evolve in the tropics. It evolved in the temperate beach forest of Argentina, where there's not that much water. So it looks, so the argument, which seems plausible, it's hard to prove, the argument is that the function of the foam nest is to allow the animals to deposit their eggs in a temporary body of water, and then when that body of water dries up, there's still enough moisture in the foam nest to allow the eggs to survive and even to hatch into tadpoles and stay in the foam nest if there's not enough water around. That's not that much of an issue in the tropics in the wet season, although it can be. There can be a few days where small uh, puddles dry up, but in the temperate zone where this adaptation first evolved, is um, that would be more of an issue. So it's a way to retain water for the developing eggs. I um,
3: have a a sort of question about the <coughs> the female auditory system so that I mean both frogs auditory system is the same right they have um, two auditory receptor epithelia one is tuned to higher frequencies and one to lower frequencies right mm-hmm. and so as a result they don't I guess it means that they don't uh, discriminate pitch the way we do they're Pitch discrimination must have to do with the relative activation of those two auditory
1: receptors. Well, yes and no. So as you said, they have two auditory end organs, two organs in the inner ear that can hear airborne sound. One's called the amphibian papilla or the AP, the other the basal papilla, or the BP. The AP hears lower frequency sounds, the BP hears higher frequency sounds. There is pitch discrimination in the amphibian papilla. So they have a frequency map distributed across the, uh, across the tectorial membrane. And um, the basal papilla, on the other hand, does not have a frequency map. So the basal papilla seems to function as a Helmholtz resonator. So its frequency sensitivity is probably more likely determined by its size, and therefore the size at which the um, epithelia within the on the BP resonate. The AP, though, they should ha- uh, they do have pitch discrimination. In the AP, but the information from the AP and the BP do pass through the eighth cranial nerve into the brain, and that at certain at certain levels in the brain, you do have neurons that are sensitive to the information coming from both the AP and the BP. So they will have W-shaped tuning curves instead of V-shaped tuning curves. And so there certainly are sites where this, the relative stimulation of the two inner ear organs can be compared. And we know in other frogs, not in the tungro frog, but in other frogs where you have a high frequency and a low frequency band simultaneously, that sometimes the ratio of one of this the sound in one band to the other can be critical. In influencing the the acoustic
3: pattern recognition so i understand your primary reason for being interested in that is because then it, that influences social communication and the signals that the calls that the animals want to make but I, i'm curious about that auditory system for its own sake and apparently it preceded the development of the calls and is a pretty ancient kind of auditory system and i was just wondering what uh, about the frog makes that auditory system. Be, what, what was the high frequency one? Yeah, that's it. See, that's I don't know, and I don't know that it
1: is known. So the amphibian papilla is actually a diagnostic characteristic of a, of the class amphibia. So there's three families of amphibians. There's frogs. There's salamanders, and then there's this. Lesser known, this family that uh, people know less about, and those are called Sicilians. All of them have an amphibian papilla. Sicilians don't have a basilar papilla. Almost all salamanders are lacking a basilar papilla, except there are some groups of salamanders that do have a basilar papilla. And then, of course, frogs have a basilar papilla. So it's not known if the basilar papilla evolved twice once in frogs and once in salamanders, because they share a common ancestor relative to Sicilians, or if the frogs and the salamander shared the basal papilla through a common ancestor, and then for some reason, it was lost in salamanders. So what does it do in frogs? Well, interestingly, as if you look through the phylogeny of frogs, as you go from the more basal species to the more advanced species, that amphibian papilla gets longer and longer and longer. So in the most primitive frogs, it's a very small patch of sensory epithelium. Okay, so now you have the small patch. What happens to their frequency sensitivity? One of two things can happen. Either they have the same range of sensitivity as would an advanced frog with a longer amphibian papilla. But if they have the same range, then their discrimination would be less because you're packing the same frequency band onto a smaller epithelium or you could have a reduced frequency range it ends up that what some what some studies suggest is you have a reduced frequency range what i think is true and um, and i and no one has tested this yet i'm pretty sure that in the primitive frogs they don't use the basal papilla at all for communication and i think the reason is because they just can't hear enough in that inner ear organ so why, why did the basal papilla evolve then? And one suggestion is that it probably might, it might have evolved to allow them to detect other sounds in the environment that are important to them besides mating calls. So it might be that the basal papilla helps them hear certain rustling of grass or things. So for instance, in Africa, um, there's a frog. When the fires start to roll through the uh, Serengeti Plains in Kenya, it makes a loud noise. These frogs, when they hear that noise, they jump into the water. And if I remember correctly, that noise is mostly in the range of the basal papilla. I would have to check that. But the, the main point is that frogs use their ears to hear other sounds. So what some people think, and this, especially this person, Ted Lewis, who used to be an engineering at UC Berkeley, his hypothesis was that the basal papilla probably originally existed to detect other sounds in the environment. And then as its frequency range expanded during the evolution of frogs, then it was able to accommodate more a greater frequency band and then accommodate the calls. So now if you look at the distribution of the hearing across the amphibian papilla and the basal papilla, even though you have two inner ear organs doing the job, they have can now they have a continuous range of hearing in the advanced frogs probably not so in the more primitive frogs it's probably two distinct bands that they can hear and perhaps not hear much at all in between perhaps but
3: that hasn't really been explored <clears throat> sufficiently so this in the in the case of the of these frog mating calls the male frog apparently just sort of uh, has adapted its call in order to get to the higher frequency range. And And when the frog makes those additional sounds, that makes that call more attractive, not just to female frogs, who apparently like it because it means the frog is big, but also to all the predators. Why would the predators... You know, why is it that females and predators... Like exactly the same male.
1: Yes. Why is it that a male should make a call that just happens to be attractive to one of his females and just happens to be attractive to a bat that will eat it and just happens to be attractive to a frog, to a fly, who's going to come down and suck out its blood? And the answer is, we don't know. We thought we knew. We thought that so the, the Tungra frog call sounds like this. It has these two parts, a whine that's followed by a chuck. And the simple call is only the whine, and that sounds like this. And then when they add a chuck, it's. And if you add more chucks, and they can add up to seven chucks. So when they add a chuck, two things happen. Three things happen. There's more energy in the call. The call is longer, but also... There's a very quick rise and fall to the chuck. So there's this frequency sweep that slowly descends and slowly drops off in amplitude. So it's and then you have this plosive sound. Now, if animals if animals localize sound by comparing the information that they get between two ears by neural cues, as mammals are thought to do, as birds probably do, and as frogs maybe do, then To maximize localizability of a sound, one would want to have a very fast onset and offset of the sound. And there's other things that you might want to do too, increase the frequency range of the sound. So we had thought complex calls are easier to localize than simple calls. So if we ask the frogs, female frogs, can you localize, find complex calls more easily than simple calls? When we first did those experiments, The answer was no, You just do them in an acoustic chamber and you measure their path as they travel to one versus the other, just as accurate. If you put background noise in the chamber, just as accurate. As far as we can tell so far, complex calls are not easy to localize by the females, even though theory predicts that perhaps they should. If we do that with the flies, we get the same answer. The flies localize the complex calls and the simple calls just as easily. But we don't even know how the, f- the flies hear the calls, so we're not sure if theory would predict that they should localize one better than the other. Bats, bats are mammals, they use binaural cues. With the bats, they can localize the complex calls easier than the simple calls sometimes. If you give a bat a simple call or a complex call in a flight cage, the bat localizes them just as well. But if you play background noise, then they localize the complex calls better. If you, if you don't play background noise, but you make the bats fly through an obstacle course to get to the calls, they localize the complex calls there. So we know why the bats might prefer complex calls, but we still don't know why the flies would. And we know with the females that the chuck gives the females information about the male body size. Larger males fertilize more eggs, so we, so we do know why the females prefer a complex calls, and it but it and it appears not to be due to localization, but because it, of the information that the Chuck's providing uh, the males with, the females with.
3: So this, you had an, sorry, right. uh, you, you, said, you called this sensory exploitation, this idea that the males adapt their call to the females' auditory system. Are there other examples of that? kind of thing?
1: Yeah, so so this idea of sensory exploitation is very simple. In a lot of animals, we see that males have elaborate sexual displays, sexual traits. They can be song, calls. They can be visual traits. And we see quite often that females have a preference for these more elaborate traits that we think have evolved under sexual selection. And the question is, how did this come about? There's various hypotheses. One is that the traits and preferences co-evolved together. Our hypothesis is different. Our hypothesis makes the starting assumption that animals use their sensory systems for lots of things. So birds did not evolve an auditory system so they could listen to song. Birds did not evolve eyes so they could see a red patch on a male swing. They use their ears and their eyes for lots of things. And our, su- our suggestion is that when males evolve traits, males that evolve the traits that are a better match to, that interact better with these sensory systems are going to be more easily detected and perceived by the female. so everything else being equal will be more attractive. And I think a, there's a couple of really good examples of that. Uh, One example is sword-tailed fish. Male sword-tails have extensions of the caudal fin that makes it look like they have a sword. Their closest relative, platyfish, don't have these swords. If you sew onto a male a plastic sword, the female platyfish prefer them. So female platyfish prefer swords to their males, even though their males don't have swords. Why? Well, we know for those kinds of fish, they're pieceleids, live-bearing fish. Females in those fishes also prefer larger males. And the hypothesis is that males evolve swords as a way to exploit this already resident preference for larger animals. One cheap way to make yourself larger is to just grow an extension. That's cheaper than making your whole body larger. That's one example. Another good example comes from fish. Another example is with fish, where people have been able to show that the sensitivity of photopigments in a fish's eyes, in many fishes, seems to evolve to maximize their ability to detect objects in their local photic environment, their local light environment. And then it appears that after that fish evolved this photopigment sensitivity to enhance contrast in their environment, and then subsequently males evolve those colors that are going to be best uh, detected by the, the fish with those photopigment sensitivities. So they evolve colors that match the, the fish's eye. So that would be another example where you have the sensory system it's under selection to do one task, and then males evolve traits that are going to match the biases in the sensory system that are there, not for mate choice initially, but are there to, uh, to deal with other tasks in the environment.
4: So um, as far as Sensory biases being maybe important for the origins of this sexual selection um, in the frogs. I mean, it's it, it is obvious that if the male produces a chuck that matches the frequency preferences of the amphibian papilla, the basa, the papilla, yeah. that um, that that's going to be more detectable to females. But it's not obvious why um, why the females should prefer that. I mean, those are two separate questions: there's detectability right. and there's preference, and one question. Uh, that occurs because in addition just to the why question uh do female frogs of species that are maybe closely related but whose vocalizations don't involve the chuck do they actually like chucks? so if you were to play a con specific wine and just add a chuck how do um females uh of species that don't normally uh have chucks in their vocalizations respond to that
1: so we did that ex- we did that experiment a number of years ago um to a species that's in the same species group as a Tungral frog, it's not very closely related. Uh, in fact, we know that it's been separated for about 15 million years because it's on the western side of the Andes. And this is Physlemus colordurum, and they don't make chucks. If you add a chuck to that call, then those females prefer the calls with chucks to calls without chucks. So that's to us, is very strong evidence that there was this preference for chucks. But things have become more can, more complicated. So uh, numerous other species have been discovered in, uh, in these frogs on the western side of the Andes. And now testing some of those species, um, not worked by me, but by one of our former graduate students in, um, in Ecuador, Santiago Ron, some of those frogs actually avoid calls with chucks. So it seems that some some of the closely related species have this inherent preference for chucks, and some of them actually have the opposite; they have an avoidance for chucks. So we don't we can't state that all frogs with this auditory system uh, construction would definitely would definitely prefer chucks if their males evolved it. So we think that the tu- the tuning is a sufficient. But, not a, but a, not a, I'm sorry, it's a necessary, but not a sufficient explanation. So the frog's peripheral auditory system needs to be matched to these chucks so it can hear it, so it can hear it well. But as you pointed out, detection and preference aren't the same thing. So it seems that some of these species have the tuning and they have the pre-existing preference. Other species have the tuning, but they don't have the pre-existing preference. So clearly, this can't all be explained by what's happening in the auditory system. So this is why we've begun our studies trying to to uncover in the brain where the preference for complex versus simple calls are. And then the idea is to look at closely related species that have complex calls and preferences, that don't have complex calls but have preferences, And that don't have complex calls and don't have preferences, and look in these same areas in the brain, specifically this laminar nucleus in the uh, torus semicircularis, and ask if those areas, those areas in the brain, respond similarly to complex versus simple calls. And hopefully, so this will allow us to disassociate this idea of detection from preference. But still, if an animal can detect a signal better, there are cases where you would predict that that should also lead to an increased preference. And the reason is because when females are searching for mates, there's something called a search cost that are that's involved. So of course, part of that cost is just the energetic expenditure of moving through the environment and assessing males. But in a lot of animals, the, anna, the females are being exposed to predation as they're doing this. And we've been able to do to do experiments showing that female preferences are risk sensitive. So if you give a female a choice between a simple call and a complex call, they go to the complex call five times more often than the simple call. Now, if you decrease the volume of the complex call, so it would be perceived by the females being farther away, one can then ask the question, how much more searching, would the female be be willing to do? How much farther would she be able to travel to go to a complex call? And the answer is about twice as far, because the difference, they'll still go to a complex call if it's six decibels down in sound intensity. But if one changes the light level in the chamber... So now the females would perceive this as being a more risky environment, now they change their preference and they won't go to the more distant, otherwise attractive call. So we know that females um, are sensitive to search costs, so if they can detect and localize a signal easier, then their females might be under selection to do just that, to be attracted to the signal that they can find the fastest and the easiest.
2: So, the, so the main idea, right, is that that it, this uh, the signaling doesn't really say and it doesn't say anything about the male's fitness, but there's this leaking in where you said of that idea, where you said that oh yes, it does, where the larger males actually uh, hit this frequency, the, the preferred frequency, better, and so uh, the females are actually preferring the the larger males, which actually has some uh, reproductive value and so my question is so there's a little bit of a mixing of ideas there, right and but the other question is so why would it why would that be true is there a cost for why can't the average male try to hit the because what you're saying is like the average male is actually on one side it's only the big ones that that hit the sweet spot i mean do you go are there males that get too far or why isn't this uh if it's not costly that the the, the mechanism that generates this thing, why isn't that dead on with the female preference? And if you're too big, it's it's not so good or not. It's so, is it possible that the frequency is actually, yeah, it's adapting to the the female's preference, but it actually doesn't, so an average male is actually a little bit below, so there's a little bit of this uh, f- sexual fitness, reproductive fitness mechanism that's leaked in on, on piggyback. Yeah, so
1: so when female because females are females are attracted to lower frequency chucks and it appears that one of the reasons they might be at the mechanistic level is because lower frequency chucks matches their hearing better. So we would so we would argue that chucks have evolved towards that frequency. I'm sorry and we know that I'm sorry we know that the other species close related species have exactly the same tuning. Whether their males can make complex calls or not. So, we can't, when, we, when the chuck evolved, that tuning is already in place. There's no other way, there's no other logical way to explain all of these different species sharing the same But Why didn't the
2: males get down to, so everybody can enjoy in the low frequency chuck? Yeah, well, one thing, not just the big guys. Yeah, well, one thing is frogs have indeterminate growth.
1: So we don't really have a male who is small versus a male who's large for their lifetimes. We have a male who is young and small, and a male who is old and large. So all the males, in theory, are going to eventually produce um, low frequency calls. Of course, not all the males not all the males are going to live that long. But the, que- the but the question that you're asking is, I mean, is an important you know very general question, and that is. Are there things that, so females get useful, do get useful information out of this. By choosing the larger males, they have greater reproductive success. So we would say that the, the advantage that the females get can explain the maintenance of their response to these low frequencies, but maybe not the origin. So the origin is that the tuning was in place already, and it ends up that, the, yeah, they do get a benefit. But are there any costs? But then another question is, then why don't all the why don't males just evolve sound, a larynx so they can make a lower frequency call? And we don't know. But one possibility is that... So these frogs are small. They're 30 millimeters in length. The, dom- the fundamental frequency of their chuck is 200 hertz. So the frogs are 30 millimeters long. The fundamental frequency of the chuck is longer, the wavelength is longer than one meter. So for when you to effectively couple sound to the environment, the wavelength of the sound really needs to be shorter, smaller, than the mechanism that's actually coupling it to the environment. What happens is the greater the mismatch between the wavelengths of the sound that need to be coupled and the vibrating mechanism that's doing the coupling, the greater that disparity the less efficient the coupling, and therefore the lower the amplitude of the signal that will come out. So one possibility, and we, and this is this is just uh, wild speculation. One possibility is that there are constraints for males evolving larger larynges that can produce lower frequency sounds without making their bodies bigger, and that is you're just not going to be able to couple that. To the environment more effectively. Now, that is that is a testable hypothesis. It's not a hypothesis that we've tested to, to be able to understand that. You'd really have to understand the, um, the engineering acoustics of the larynx. But if one were to understand that, then you could actually ca- calculate the coupling efficiency of the sound to the environment. You would be able to determine what the loss in amplitude would be, and then you could ask the female frogs, would this loss in amplitude have any influence on their on their preferences? But until we have a good acoustic model of how the larynx works, um,
5: we wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, hi, this is Carlos. Um, so it, it, you kind of alluded this uh, before when you talked about preference versus um, detectability. And it seems like what you're saying is that the evolution of the male frog um, mating call is really based on an external organ uh, um, the if I forget which um, papilla is it the the, the, basilar. the basilar papilla yeah. which is just a function of its size and the epithelial tissue and and that kind of sounds like that that's where the decision <clears throat> is made which we know can't really be um, so uh, so it, and then you talk a little bit about preference. So where is this actual decision being made that the preference happens? And perhaps there is where we need to look at so that we can find out why the frogs have different um, different frequency ranges, um, and not all of them are just focusing on the one frequency range that happens to be the best one for the for the base of the papilla. Am I making Am I making sense? Um,
1: I'm sure you're making sense. I'm not sure they understand all the argument, but let me try. So the, the peripheral end organs in a sensor, they're going to determine what at what frequencies of the sound get passed to the brain. So they're probably everything else being equal, male calls that are able to have more of their call energy transduced to neural responses that eventually reach the brain are going to be stimulating more salient to a female than a male for whom most of their frequencies are missing these frequency channels that eventually lead to the brain. So the peripheral auditory system is an important first step in that it's screening out a lot of frequencies but letting in uh, some other frequencies. So in some sense, that's the, that's the most basic aspect that's going to have an influence on preference. And, you, and if I heard what you're saying correctly, you know, you're absolutely right. The decision is not being made in the periphery, but the relationship between the call and the periphery does influence the preference. Not because it influences the decision, but it influences how much acoustic information is even going to be passed on to the brain, where that decision could be made. So we do. So what what our um, what our brain studies have suggested is that. In this large auditory nucleus, the torus semicircularis, there seems to be a lot of um, analysis that goes on there, and enough that there's enough neural information there for a female to discriminate between a complex call and a simple call. Now we don't, we haven't asked how if females can discriminate high frequency chucks versus low frequency chucks in that part of the brain we do know that in this large auditory nucleus, the females can already tell the difference between certain calls. And Then by looking at the hypothalamus, we do see that salient calls, that is conspecific calls, both simple and complex, lead to patterns of co-variation in neural firing in the hypothalamus that you just don't get when you play them other calls, even though they're getting plenty of sound information. But if you, if you play them a heterospecific call, where we know from the tumor frog's hearing that they can hear all those sounds. If we know that that same sound doesn't give rise to much neural activation in the auditory nucleus, and then we do know that it results in patterns of firing the hypothalamus that are distinctly different than than what we see when the female's hearing salient calls. So we think that The final, these decisions, in quotes, are being made in the hypothalamus after they're getting the necessary auditory information from the midbrain, uh, from from the torus semicircularis. And then from the hypothalamus, we have other studies that show that you get very strong patterns of firing between the hypothalamus and between areas of the forebrain that are important in initiating um, motor output. So supposedly, we assume the movement of the females. Uh, towards the sound. So the periphery, just to kind of summarize, you're right, the peripheral auditory system is not making any decisions. What it's doing is it's screening out certain kinds of um, acoustic potential acoustic information to the females. And then this is being analyzed more fully in the brain. And although we we would still argue that the tuning of the periphery gives us some insights into why females prefer higher-frequency chucks to lower-frequency chucks. The tuning of the periphery doesn't tell us why females prefer chucks or where where any of her decisions are being made. It just tells us that males that can get more energy through that filter, which will eventually reach the brain. In general, are more likely to be preferred by females, but we don't know where this where the actual
5: decision to
1: prefer low frequency checks versus high frequency checks is made.
5: I have uh, two, two follow up questions then. So, is is there um, I don't know the auditory anatomy of the frog too much. I work in rodents, so but is there an equivalent to the cochlear nucleus, which is you know the, the first step straight from the um, the inner ear, um, where you can perhaps get some measure of the actual Coupling of the sound and and the, the transformation, the coupling into um, uh, firing information of, of actual neurons, so that you can actually test this whether it's it, whether it's the complex sounds actually have better coupling um, because of the basilar papilla, or whether it's actually something downstream of the basilar papilla, where by preference is made somewhere in the nervous system. And then the the second part of the question is then you're telling us that there's a a frequency tuning that's um, based on the peripheral uh, basal papilla, um, which may be the same frequency tuning that the male has for his own ears. So is is the male making a mating call because it just sounds louder to himself and he's just making louder sounds so that he can compensate for this... um, two times difference in distance that the <laughs> female may have to travel, and 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 then the preference is just a consequence of that after being done in the nervous system. Well, so the second suggestion, I've never thought of that.
1: I mean, we don't know to what extent there's positive, that there's a feedback between the male's call, the male's perception of the call, and then the male's motor output. So... What we do know is that when the males begin to call in a call bout, the amplitude of both the wine and the chuck tend to be low, and then it increases over, after a number of calls, and then it tends to plateau. We had always viewed that as a, um, as a mechanical constraint, the males warming up. We know, for instance, that moths have to sit still and beat their wings for a few minutes before they can fly. They need to warm up the muscles. Um, that's what we had guessed was happening with the male frogs. Whether there's, whether there's any kind of auto-regulation of the male's amplitude, we don't have a clue. And that's a really good suggestion. We do know that males don't need to hear calls to be, during development to be able to produce the conspecific calls. So they don't learn song like songbirds learn song. But what that says is that the male, what I'm saying there is the males don't have to hear other males' call to learn, to learn their calls. We know with songbirds that it's very important that not only do the birds hear song while they're developing, but they then, that they're then able to hear themselves' call. And this has never been tested in a frog. Our study is the first study ever to even ask if frogs learn their call. They don't learn their call, but what we haven't shown... Is would a deafened frog make a normal call? So that's a that's a really good suggestion. Just thinking in general about male um, a male attention to his own call and what that might mean. Because you're right. What we a lot of what the males are doing could be due to what they're hearing them rather than being teleological. What they think the females hear. In answer to the first question. Um, no, not only am I not an auditory neurobiologist, I'm not a neurobiologist, but there are, there are areas in the brain where the... Um, so when the, the eighth nerve inner, innervates in the brainstem, and there's two auditory nuclei that have been well studied, there, are the dorsal medullary nucleus and the superior olive. And I'm actually going to uh, defer to Rama here to fill in the details, but there's never been, to my knowledge, any analyses of those two, Lower auditory nuclei to suggest that any serious um, call recognition is going on there, but Rama can tell us oh, more. Right, actually,
5: I was one last. Um, so, but mm-hmm. one other experiment could be uh, just a correlative experiment with the males, as just to say whether the the exact tuning frequency of each individual is correlated to the to their hearing uh, to their hearing. to their call. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. yeah.
5: Anyway, I don't believe that that has been done.
0: You mean a call produced by a male, and then the males males auditory. Is- Neurons are tested?
5: Yeah. Never. Well, the, the, the other Neuron experiment is, exactly. is just the, the medullary nucleus, you said? Is yeah, the that's the analog of the cochlear
0: nucleus. Okay, so the
5: analog of the cochlear nucleus does is is, is a, a simple call versus a simple call with a ch- or a complex call mm-hmm. um, have the same throughput through the outer ear and produce the same level of response in the first nucleus. The
0: experiment, as you say, the experiment, as you stated, has not—I don't believe it has been done. But there are, there are issues of masking here. So if you mm-hmm. if you give a sound and then you give a sound immediately after that, then the sound, then the following sound is modified. The response to the following sound is modified by the first one. It's just a simple issue of masking. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to decouple. You know, then so if if the leading sound is altering the response to the following sound, does it indicate complex processing? Or is it just a simple matter of physical masking, energetic masking? That that So these issues are hard to decouple. I think the general dogma, the general idea um, is that it, at the level of the DMN, which is the analog of the cochlear nucleus and the superior olive, there is no significant complexity in processing. I would, that would be sort of seems to be. There are other features that may be extracted. For example, you know, in the olivary nucleus, you actually localize sounds. Uh, but is there complex sound People have looked at uh, amplitude modulation, response to amplitude modulations, and so on. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it seems as if the more complex processing takes place at later stages. There's some preliminary processing taking place where more complex stuff is being done at the level of the torus, the inferior colliculus. Mm-hmm. That, that seems to be pretty much
4: the yeah. general idea. So as far as trying to localize where, where in the brain the discrimination and the preferences, uh, where the preference judgment occurs... I mean, you outlined uh, one strategy, which is to, in some way, uh, examine the activity of neurons in the brain when you give different calls and see which ones are differentially activated. But another strategy, of course, is to destroy parts of the brain and see which parts are required to express the behavior. I was wondering if that kind of study has been done. For the, um...
1: Yeah, I know of, um, and again, Rama would be more familiar with this, but I do know of one study where... Auditory nuclei above the torus are ablated. And I believe the thalamus uh, study by Fang.
0: Professor Fang.
1: Yeah, it and if you ablate the thalamus, which is downstream from the torus, females still sho- females do still sh- still do show phonotaxis. Um, and I'm not familiar of many more ablation many more ablation studies um, that have been tried out, uh, outside of that.
0: Not many,
1: no. Not that I know of. I know that one. But I don't know the other and, and that does, and that does suggest. So, to remind you, in the Túngara frog, we show that in the torus, the, the um, patterns of neural activity show that there is neural discrimination between, for instance, complex calls and simple calls. And of course, that in some there that information is fed forward to the thalamus, which is with, which also does a lot of uh, there's a lot of auditory responses, but those ablation studies suggest, at least in the fra- the animal in which it was conducted, that you don't need to get above the torus for the uh, for for the for the females to be able to discriminate calls.
0: Okay, I think with that, that was an absorbing discussion, uh, and uh, thank you very much, Mike Ryan, for being with us here today. And thanks again for the invitation to visit. Thank you all of you. This is Neuroscientist Talk. Show.
1: And tell